Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm Kit. Welcome to Storytime, where stars plus lines equal stories. On this month's podcast, we are going to be visiting Cancer, the crab of the night sky. Cancer is Latin for crab, and it's one of the great, 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 48 constellations identified by Ptolemy. It's one of the fainter zodiac constellations, and at about 506 square degrees, it's slightly smaller than Gemini. Which we talked about last month in episode 6. Mm-hmm. So you can go there to learn all about the dude bro twins Pollux and Castor. But this constellation ranks 31st in size out of the 88 IAU-recognized constellations. Speaking of the IAU, they identify this constellation as a crab, Mm -hmm. but it has also been identified as other hard-shelled creatures throughout history, including a scarab beetle in ancient Egypt and a snapping turtle in some translation of ancient Babylonian texts. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about some of those uh, ancient Babylonian texts in our myths section. But are we going to talk about it being identified as a beetle, a crayfish, or lobster? Um, so those ones are interesting, especially the crayfish and lobster, because they actually aren't ancient at all. Um, they emerged in the 12th and 17th century. So I don't know. It seems like people weren't fully convinced that this constellation was a crab. Yeah, it was still an open-ended choose-your-own-crustacean adventure <laughs> at this point. Actually, that's a great segue to our first impressions of the constellations here. What did it look like to you, Kit? Ooh, it's hard to get to crab. Yeah, really hard. <laughs> I mean, we had a good streak going where the constellation did look like its symbol, but... Yeah, um, I tried to avoid letters because, as we talked about before, there's lots of letters in the night sky, but this one is just an upside-down Y, and that's how various guides on how to find this constellation, that's how they describe it. And this is a one, a constellation where basically, like, even when you see the crab drawn in, you're like, it doesn't, it doesn't even, doesn't even make sense. So I guess if I'm trying not to use letters, then I'm going to be like, it's a tent with smoke. I don't know. (laughs) What do you think? To me, it looked like someone who was like playing a game of hangman and they figured out the answer after only doing the legs and the body of the figure. So it's like half of a stick figure. But then I remember at Hangman, you usually start with the head. <laughs> so even that was a bit of a stretch. So yeah, I guess like when I tried to come up with something else, I basically just had a similar version to what you did. Instead of a tent with smoke, in my head, it was a pyramid shooting a ray gun mm-hmm. out of the top. Even still, it was hard. It's Like you said, it's not even a polygon. Mm-hmm. It doesn't form a complete shape. Yeah, and I mean, if you want to tell me this is a lobster, yep, okay. I mean, it does look more like a lobster than a crab, at least. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has one long part and two things that could be pinchers. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we had a good run there with Taurus and Gemini, and they look vaguely like their symbols, at least. Yeah, so I think that means we just need to get more technical So, uh, if we want to help people to find it. So Cancer's right ascension is 8 hours and 25 minutes, and its declination is 20 degrees. It can be seen between latitudes 90 and minus 60 degrees, and the best time to see it now is in around 9 p.m. during March. Yeah, and that's due to the wibbly-wobbly of the Earth, as we discussed all the way back in episode one. And you can also find it by star hopping. So if you use the Big Dipper, that can point you to the brightest star in Leo, which we'll talk about next month. 
And if when you find that bright star in Leo, and then you find the bright star is Pollux and Castor, which we learned about last month. And we learned, in fact, Castor isn't just one star, but a sextuple mm. star system. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's so bright. So once you find this sort of set of bright stars, you look between the bright star in Leo and between Pollux and Castor, between those sort of sets of stars, and then Cancer is right there in the middle on the ecliptic. Perfect. So now we know where and when to find it. Let's talk about the, quote, brightest stars in this constellation. Yeah, that is definitely bright, relatively speaking. So there are 10 named stars in this constellation, but none of them have a visible magnitude brighter than positive 3. All right, let's take maybe a brief detour to talk through visible magnitude and what that positive 3 value means. Yeah, definitely. So visible magnitude is also called apparent magnitude. And it's basically telling us how bright a star or another space object looks from here on Earth. And this is in contrast to absolute brightness, which we would measure based on the brightness of a particular object or star at a fixed distance of 10 parsecs. Perfect. That makes sense to me. So the apparent is what we see from Earth as our fixed point, and the absolute is what it actually is. So if a star is close to us, it might appear brighter than a star that's further away from us that actually is brighter. Yeah, exactly. Things get a little confusing with this scale, though, because lower and negative numbers are brighter than positive numbers. Okay, for reference, though, give us like something really bright. What would be the magnitude of like our sun? So the magnitude of our sun, the visible magnitude, is negative 25.74, and our full moon is about negative 13. Okay, yeah, so if you're going to be pretty, pretty bright here on Earth, you're going to be in the negative numbers. And if you're in mm -hmm. the positive numbers, you're pretty dim. Yeah, and I think for the sake of our conversation, there are some other helpful reference points. So at negative four, these are bright objects you could see even in cities, so things like the planet Venus. At zero, you can still see them, um, these objects, without a binocular, but it's going to be hard if you're in a city or even in a suburb. At positive four and five, you're going to need binoculars. You can still see them, but you need binoculars, and you're going to probably need to be someplace more suburby or more rural. And around positive six or seven, you're basically at the limit of the naked eye stars that you can see here on Earth. And the brightest star in Cancer is about 3.5 on this scale. So it's pretty dim. Somewhere in the, you're probably going to need binoculars, even in a rural area level. Yeah, exactly. These are, 3.5s are some of the faintest ones you can see without binoculars. And they're going to be tough in cities or big suburbs. And so when we say that none of these stars have a visible magnitude brighter than 3, it's because they're very faint. So how do they measure this apparent brightness? Hopefully we're not using the same old just eyeball it and then assume you have absolute authority approach that Bayer made so popular. He did such a good job, though. <laughs> really hoping no one would check his answers. So these scales actually have a pretty long history. Um, astronomers like Hipparchus and our guy Ptolemy basically wanted to classify things on a 1 to 6 scale. And the current scale, the reason why we see these negative numbers, is because it's on a reverse log scale to make it more consistent with these historical measurement strategies. Exactly. So still to this day, they're trying to align it with this 1 to 6 ancient methodology. If they had come up with a whole new system from scratch, maybe in the 16th mm. century or 18th century, maybe we wouldn't have negative numbers and positive <laughs> numbers. Yeah, probably would not have been their choice. 
doesn't seem the most obvious choice. No, not at all. So these days, apparent magnitude is actually measured using photometry. And the basic idea is that astronomers use a telescope with a special microchip that measures electromagnetic radiation, and they count or otherwise calculate the number of photons captured on the charge-coupled device, or CCD, image that they take. They also, of course, make adjustments in their calculations for the Earth's atmosphere and those kinds of things so that we can get really accurate estimates of the brightness of various objects. Much better than Bayer. Like, if we're using electromagnetic radiation and we're measuring photons, Mm -hmm. I think we're pretty much, that's as scientific as we can get at this point. Yeah. All right, so let's get into these three very dim, albeit the brightest stars, (laughs) now that we have a better understanding of how the scale works. So the brightest star in Cancer is Beta Cancri. You heard that, Bayer? Not Alpha Cancri. It's also known as Altarf or Tarf. The name is derived from Arabic, but sources differ as to the actual underlying translation. You'll see some translation of Altarf or Tarf as the end, but there are other versions of it that translate to the eye or the glance of Leo. These are two very different translations, but that's language for you. Mm-hmm. Beta Cancri is a binary star system, and it is 290 light years away. Its main star is an orange K-type that is 50 times the radius of the sun, and its visible magnitude, as mentioned earlier, is that 3.5. Its companion is a red dwarf star that orbits 2,600 AU from the main star, so it's a pretty long-distance relationship. (laughs) Yeah, that's really, really far. And in 2014, astronomers published work suggesting that there is a planet orbiting the larger of the stars. It's a gas giant planet, which is about 7.8 times the size of Jupiter, and is named, according to convention, Beta Cancri B. Yeah, and the second brightest star is Delta Cancri. So we've gotten Beta and Delta. are the first two brightest, and we haven't heard an alpha yet, so classic Bayer guessing, don't check. But okay, you know, someone's got to start the process. Delta Cancri is a double star system that's located 180 light years from Earth, and it has two parts. It has Delta Cancri A and Delta Cancri B, and Delta Cancri A is also a binary star system. So what's the difference between a double star and a binary star? So double stars are also called visual doubles, and it's basically when we use optical telescopes and stars seem like they're close together. But not all double stars are binary stars. Binary stars implies that there has been a confirmed gravitationally bound relationship and that the two stars are orbiting one another. Okay, so if we have a double star, it could very well also be a binary star, but we don't know yet. We don't have enough data. That makes sense. Okay. So Delta Cancri is at the center of this constellation, and it lies 0.08 degrees north of the ecliptic. So it's basically right on the ecliptic line. And together, the binary star system has an apparent magnitude of plus 3.94. So even dimmer, of course, going back to about 4 to 5 is binocular limit in a not city. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because the brighter star in this system is a K-type giant star that's 52 times brighter than our sun. It's super bright and very, very far away. Exactly. And one of the stars in the system is also known by the Latin name Acellus Australis, which means southern donkey colt. 
Wait, what? I thought this was a crab-based constellation. <laughs> well, it's a crab and a donkey. We'll talk about it in the, in the myth section. I mean, sometimes it is hard to tell the difference between a crab and a donkey. I understand. <laughs> uh, my final fun fact about this star is that its traditional ancient Babylonian name is the longest known star name. And it is Ark Ushana Garusha Asha Utu. Actually, Kit, I think it's properly pronounced Arkushana Nangarusha Shutu. Okay? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tricky. There are a lot of letters here. Uh, we'll post it over um, on our Twitter, at StorytimePod, and you can give it a try. But, wow, that's a lot of letters to look at. And I'm not surprised that the IAU did not adopt this name. Moving forward, the third brightest star is... Not Beta, <laughs> not Delta. Mm. Does Alpha Can Cry even exist? We don't know. But the third brightest is Iota Can Cry. And I'm pretty sure Iota is like somewhere in the middle, like the eighth or ninth letter in the Greek alphabet. Yes, yeah, the ninth letter in the Greek alphabet. <laughs> All right, slow clap for Bayer. This has not been his finest moment, but that makes sense. We keep saying over and over again these stars are very far away. Anyways, Iota Cancry is another double star system. Iota Cancry A is a yellow G-type giant star. It has an apparent magnitude of plus 4.02. Iota Cancry B is a white A-type main sequence star, and it has an apparent magnitude of plus 6.57. What's probably most interesting about this system is that Iota Cancry A is a mild barium star, which astronomers believe are always part of binary star systems, but we haven't found the donor star yet. So this has led astronomers to hypothesize that the system also has a white dwarf somewhere, but we haven't quite observed it yet. Yeah, it's so cool. I think we should do a little asterism on barium stars sometime, or maybe the next time we have one in our brightest stars, we'll, we'll do a little aside on them. Those are the three brightest, not-so-bright stars in this month's constellation. But are they the best stars in the constellation? Or even the most interesting thing in this part of the night sky? Well, Kit, it's up to you to let us know. I have all the authority of the IAU. Here on the Starry Time, you do. You better believe it. So we'll find out what star or space object has won your gold star of the month when we come back. Welcome back to our segment, Gold Star, where we alternate picking the star or space object in our constellation of the month that captures our mind, mm. our heart, or our soul. Mm. Or all three. I mean, I'll be honest. Some of the stars we covered earlier weren't exactly flashy, <laughs> literally or figuratively. So I'm assuming you have brought it this month. But where'd you go, Kit? I always bring it. Oh, I know it. I know it. <laughs> so there are basically three contenders. Uh, for Gold Star this month. So the first and probably most well-known object in this constellation is called the Beehive Cluster, or Messier 44, or Praesipi, which contains 50 stars and is an open star cluster that was described by Ptolemy as the nebulous mass in the breast of cancer. So he didn't know exactly what it was, but it was visible, and he could tell there was some sort of cluster here. Mm -hmm. But we've already talked about open star clusters, and even though this is popular, it's not my favorite, because I'm only basic when it comes to the Crab Nebula and Taurus. 
We did love the Crab Nebula in Taurus. All right, so what was contender number two? So this probably would have been your pick if you had been in charge this month. Um, it wasn't mine, but this is a super Earth planet that is orbiting row one Cancri, which is also known as 55 Cancri or Copernicus. I mean, honestly, the only thing I like more than a possible second Earth is a possible super <laughs> Earth. So, yeah, I, I wasn't compelled by a exoplanet, which means what space object do I love more than all other space objects? If there's one thing I know about you, Kit, is that this answer has got to be black mm. holes, right? Oh, of course it is. So, <laughs> let me tell you about, <laughs> about this object. So, it is 3.5 billion light years away from Earth, and it is a galaxy that is called OJ287. That has at its center binary, which means orbiting, supermassive black holes. Whoa. Binary black holes? So like a binary star system, but binary black holes? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and these ones are huge. The larger black hole is 720 AU, or 67 billion miles in diameter. And it is 18 billion times the mass of our sun. (laughs) The smaller one is a 6AU or 56 million miles in diameter and is 150 million times the mass of our sun. So this larger black hole is one of the largest that we've ever found. I mean, these are gigantic and there's two of them and they're orbiting each other. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And for quick reference, Sagittarius A in the center of our galaxy is about 4 to 4.5 million times the mass of our sun and has a diameter of 14.6 million miles and these black holes you're telling us about they have 67 billion miles in diameter Mm -hmm. it's incredible yeah and they orbit one another for a period of 12 years and they will eventually merge in about 10,000 years that's gonna be an event the big vacuum is getting turned on let's uh see if we can start uh pre-ordering tickets soon <laughs> and this is a just a cool galaxy because it's also a blazar oh blazar <laughs> i need to ask uh what's a blazar so blazars have a gal- active galactic nucleus and a relativistic jet which is pointing toward us here on earth as the observer so it's basically like a quasar but oriented in a different direction and this one is a particular type of blazar that's called a bl lack object and yeah this is just such a cool object there's just it's it's super massive black holes like i can't choose anything else for a very bland galaxy called OJ287, <laughs> featuring supermassive binary black holes and blazars. This is a pretty great addition to the Gold Star Club. Welcome back. We've spent some time with the astronomy of cancer which features some really cool objects with really bland (laughs) names. So now let's talk about the stories that surround this myth. What did you remember about cancer? What did you remember about this one, Kit? I remembered it was a crab. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's exactly where I was at. If you had asked me what goes on in this myth, I would say, it's a crab, right? And you'd say, yeah, that's not a myth. You're just telling me it's a crab. And I would say, 
Yeah, it's a crab, right? <laughs> Very helpful. So there is a little more to the story, albeit not a ton more. Yeah, this myth is uh, a little bit thin. The summary here is there's basically a giant crab named Carcinos who lives in the lagoon of Lerna, who is thrown into battle by Hera while Hercules, or Heracles, as he is known in Greek myth, is fighting the Hydra, which is the second of the twelve labors of Hercules. So Juno, aka Hera, hates her stepson. Don't let Disney tell you otherwise. <laughs> so, Hercules is destroying the Hydra in this battle, and Hera is starting to pick up on the fact that he might actually win. So in a desperate attempt to defeat him, she throws out Carcinos as a distraction or as an added obstacle for Hercules. And even though Hercules defeats them both and goes on to the other ten labors, she does in fact put the Hydra and the Crab in the sky as tribute. Yeah, a little bit of spoilers for the Hydra constellation, but I think that's a really good summary. Uh, it tells us why the crab gets into the sky and who the crab is. But since we will definitely see Hercules again, he has his own constellation, and also there are other constellations, including in the Zodiac, that have to do with him, I think this is maybe a good time to talk a bit more about him and get into his parentage a little bit. Sure, let's do it. So Hercules, and I'm just going to say Hercules, even though I'm going to also be using Greek god names because of the Hercules TV show, which was very formative for me growing up. So just uh, that's just going to be how it is here. Yeah, don't at us. You know, find something better to do. You know? yeah, don't at me. I know me. you can. Don't at me. I'm very sensitive. Um, so Hercules is the son of Zeus and Alcimi, who is also called Electrion. Oh, yeah, that's his wife, right? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, no. So in popular versions of the myth, Alcimi is actually the granddaughter of Perseus and Andromeda. I see. Not his wife. <laughs> Check for Zeus. So her father is the son of Perseus and Andromeda. Exactly. And she is described in Hesiod's Theogony as shapely ankled. I mean, if you have to go down in history for something, I guess shapely ankled is better than cankled, sure. <laughs> and in his other work, Shield of Heracles, Hesiod says of Alcimi, she surpassed the tribe of womankind in beauty and height and in wisdom. But he also states, she so honored her husband in her heart as none of womankind did before her. And I'll, I'll link the full translations in our, in our show notes. I mean, it's really hard to beat the shapely ankle commentary that Hesiod starts with, but I get it. She's smart and she's loyal, which begs the Zeus question. What kind of animal did he have to become this time to trick her? Well, this is really messed up, even for Zeus. So Zeus pretended to be her husband. While her husband was away avenging the death of her brothers, Zeus swoops in and then, you know, the next day or whenever her husband comes home, she's like, uh, what? Yeah, I thought I just saw you last night. Oops. <laughs> and once again, we have a story of super fecundation because Alcimi obviously sleeps with her actual husband and gets pregnant. Um, and I do want to just note here that super fecundation is not that common. And it's kind of wild that we have two stories in a row that feature it. 
I mean, it's one way to explain why out of two kids, one is a hero and the other is a nobody. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely a lot more common in myth than in biology. Yeah, so Hercules also has a mortal half-brother. But Alcimede's labor was really difficult, and Ovid attributes this to the large size of Hercules and Juno slash Hera's ordering of the goddess of childbirth to prevent the birth from happening. It seems like Hera also had an ulterior motive here, beyond just delaying the birth to make it more painful. She also is trying to make sure that Hercules doesn't fit the requirements of some edict of Zeus about a mortal child being born on a particular day, becoming a hero or something like that. So she's going out of her way to prevent this birth for that reason as well. Yeah, and that part of the myth is a little bit confusing to me, but what is really clear is that Hera hates the guts of Hercules, and she even sends a serpent to his crib to try to kill him as a literal baby. So day one, even in utero, this kid is um, on her shit list. That's nice. <laughs> there are a lot of backstories and adventures of Hercules, and we'll definitely, like you said, be talking about him again for some of the other zodiac signs. Yeah, yeah, let's try to focus in on the crab. Hercules will get his own time. Back to the crab. Well, that story does have a clear ending before it becomes a constellation. After Hera throws him into battle, as said before, he is promptly squashed by Hercules. He is crab stomped. <laughs> this cannot be a very giant crab, right? Like He could fit underneath Hercules' uh -huh. foot. So either Hercules has shack-sized feet mm. and it is a really big crab, or I like the idea that Hera just sent a normal-sized crab, you know, just to annoy him while he's fighting this nine-headed monster. Here's just a crab, you just know. Just a regular just crab. Why not? <laughs> and that's basically the whole story for Cancer. Mm -hmm. When in doubt, Hera will toss out a crab. Yeah, as we said, there's not really much more to that myth. There is another Greco-Roman myth related to donkeys, which explains why some of the stars have donkey-related names. And this one is also pretty simple. Basically... When the gods were fighting the giants who came after the titans, some of the gods showed up on donkeys, and the braying of the donkeys terrified the giants, and then the giants ran away. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Perfectly. I mean, when a donkey brays, I know I'm scared. Mm. I mean, maybe there was a war going on between donkeys and giants that had been going on for much longer than we knew, and they had good reason to be scared. Cannon. For all we know, yeah. So we have a crab that bit a guy, and donkeys who terrify giants. <laughs> Neither of these stories are really that great, but the Babylonian astronomy is intriguing. First, there's some debate as to what this constellation actually is in Babylonian astronomy. According to Babylonian star lore by Gavin White, the name may just mean water creature, and it could be associated not so much with a crab, but in fact with a snapping turtle. Either way, this crab constellation was used to predict flooding, and it was associated with the entrance to the underworld and summoning of ghosts. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, a lot of the constellations do seem to be related to this entrance to the underworld. And I didn't really see any specific myths about flooding or about the summoning of ghosts. But it seems like the crab was more of a symbolic representation in Babylonian star lore. Perfect. All right, before we get to the symbolism of the crab, should we talk about maybe some other themes of these myths? Yeah, I mean, I think the Hera crab myth is 
tricky because although the 12 labors of Hercules broadly has clear themes and tropes like the evil stepmother and morals about retribution and purification, the crab really isn't central to the myth. And Hercules, as I said, has his own constellation where we can really dig into the narrative themes and lessons from that story. So there's not really like much more, I don't know, to say about the crab myth in general in that story. I completely agree. Even though you can read some symbolic meaning into each of the labors of Hercules, the crab isn't even really the central foe in this one. He's just like a sidekick thrown in to be defeated along the way. Ultimately, I think that this myth is similar to Capricornus from episode 1 in that it was from another culture and was ported in mm. by the Greeks. The Babylonian Star-Lore mentions the story of Ninurta, who was a Mesopotamian god who also performed some heroic battles, including one against a turtle. So, Cancer the Crab itself might be that this is just a shoehorning in of ancient symbols into a new cosmology. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same thing as using a reverse log transformation to make the visible magnitude scale match up with ancient <laughs> visible magnitude scale. And it does seem like the connection between this constellation and flooding and death could be related to the overall purpose of myth to explain the natural world, since this constellation was associated with the summer solstice and shortening of days. So that might also be partly what's happening in the Babylonian version of this myth. I think ultimately we can all agree that there really isn't that much going on in these myths. So we decided that what we should do is add a new little segment to our analysis section that we are calling Creature Corner. So the purpose of this segment is just to talk about fun facts related to the creature in the sky, which I think will also maybe shed some light on why they ended up in the night sky or maybe where some of the symbolic associations are coming from. So yeah, I think I'm just going to hand this over to you, Jordan. Tell us about the crab. Crabs are a decapod crustacean. They live in all the world's oceans, as well as in fresh water and on land. They're generally covered in a thick exoskeleton and have a single pair of fintures. So that's the basic definition of a body form of a crab. They first appeared in the Jurassic period, approximately 200 million years ago. Mm. So crabs have been around for a pretty long time. They are omnivores, they eat algae, but they'll eat pretty much any food they can get, <laughs> including mollusks, worms, fungi, bacteria, other crustaceans, detritus. It all depends on pretty much availability. But for many crabs, it's actually pretty beneficial for them to eat a variety of animal matter, as that leads to the fastest growth and greatest fitness. Crabs as a group vary in size quite greatly. The smallest is a pea crab, mm. which is a few millimeters wide. You know, can fit on your fingernail. Mm -hmm. And the largest currently is a Japanese spider crab, which has a leg span of up to 13 <laughs> feet. What? And if you just Google this, look up spider crab. It is an ocean creature, and it is gigantic. Wow. There are several other groups of crustaceans that look similar to crabs, such as you may have heard of king crabs or purslan crabs, but they're not true crabs. But all the same, they have evolved similar features. And this is a process that's known as carcinization. It's a form of convergent evolution in which two animals develop similar adaptations unrelated to each other's. So for instance, an ichthyosaurus, which is a swimming reptile, 
and a dolphin, which is a swimming mammal. They both have the same sort of fins and body plan, although they did not evolve together. So it's basically like they end up looking pretty similar, even though they're not really related to each other. Perfect. Exactly. And carcinization is a special example of this that happens a lot in crustaceans. It's pretty simple, but we can see this process has occurred at least five times independently. So everyone should just remember, if you're going to take anything away from Creature Corner today, is that crabs are super adaptable, they're super successful, they're omnivores that have been around for 200 million years, and perhaps if Mother Nature could choose a gold star template for life on Earth, crab very well may be one of her first choices. Yeah, and carcinization, when I first told Bap that we were going to be doing a creature corner about crabs, he was like, you have to talk about carcinization. And then separately, um, you, Jordan, like messaged me and you were like, we got to talk about carcinization. And I was like, I don't even know what this is, but now I know. And yeah, it's really cool. This is just, yeah, crabs. Crabs are interesting for sure. So definitely let us know how you feel about Creature Corner over on our Twitter at StarrytimePod. And I think that now that we've covered the stories, the themes, the astronomy, our crab fun facts, I think we should take a really quick break and then see how we can wreck Constellation this myth so we can do justice to the crab. Welcome back to our segment, Rhett Constellation. In this segment, we look for ways to modernize and deepen the stories of our monthly constellation, as well as to find ways to make them less cringy. But this month, like Pisces, we probably just need a whole new myth to convincingly connect the constellation to the imagery. So I think that's kind of the direction we're going to go in. But do you want to tell me about your wreck constellation, Jordan? What did you come up with for a more justifiable reason to put the crab in the stars? Yeah, we saw in the Hera Hercules myth that Cancer is kind of literally a throwaway character. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to change the point of view of the narrative entirely. In my story, it's going to be a creation myth that centers around Carcinos, the creator god. And in this creation myth, there are two black holes. That have existed mm. forever and one day we don't know how or why a crab comes crawling out of the first one and starts reaching into the second black hole where this crab is able to pluck out pieces of galaxies as well as stars and moons and matter and elements one by one from this second black hole it reaches in with its pinchers and takes things from the void and starts placing it upon its shell so its shell is a combination of stars and galaxies that this decorator crab, basically, has just plucked out according to its mind's eye and aesthetic. So in this myth, the universe in its entirety is all the shell of a gigantic crab decorator who's attempting to adorn itself from the void. Therefore, our constellation Cancer it's just a small reminder that the creator crab is watching over us. Also, if I get to wreck constellation everything, my crab constellation will look a lot more like a crab too. <laughs> so people will really know that the creator god Carcinos has never left us. <laughs> so 
that's my rec constellation here for Cancer the Crab. Yeah, it's I really like this myth. I like the idea of it being like a creation myth. I think it provides an explanation for why carcinization exists. And maybe, like, it exists everywhere, right? Like, everywhere there's habitable earth, maybe there will be crabs. Like, I love that idea. And I love just, again, just changing the framework, making this just all about crabs. Crabs are really cool, as we learned in Creature Corner. So they should get, yeah, this kind of creation myth. Which I think brings us to our next rec constellation. <laughs> you want to keep us going here, Kit? Oh, yes. Uh, speaking of decorator crabs. Okay, so I have a number of um, rec constellations. I got really in on this one. It's almost like... When there's less there, you can just really let your mind do what it wants. You can be really creative. So my first feeling, like my very first reconciliation was, okay, let's make Cancer the Crab a story about the retribution of Tamatoa from Moana. So Perfect. <laughs> what I want is the story of Tamatoa using the shiny energy for good. Uh, you know, it'll still have the same moral and arc as the Hercules story, but it's about Tamatoa, and it's more likable because Tamatoa is more likable. There's no Zeus. There's no Hera. It's just the 12 labors of Tamatoa. So that was my first one. My second one is, okay, so maybe you don't want to totally leave Greco-Roman mythology away. Like, you're just like, okay, I don't want to... Mm -hmm throw that all away so fine let's rewrite the hercules story so that the crab in that story is tamatoa even better <laughs> it's just uh you know let's plus up the villain let's make it feel like less of a side story um because right now it really does feel like the crab is just a side note and it makes it really strange to me that it gets into the night sky into the constellations and then into the zodiac but the story is just kind of like meh. Like you got to be prime time if you are getting into the stars. And so I think a Tamatoa villain uh, would be much more um, understandable and make the story a lot more interesting. Yeah, I think this is a great rec constellation. And even if you don't use Tamatoa, just the rec constellation of giving Cancer the Crab in the original myth any sort of personality or goals or desires would definitely be a plus up. And I mean, Temato is shiny. He belongs in the stars. Um, yeah, so that was my sort of first set of Rhett constellations. But I then tried to take it a little more seriously and tried to put aside my love of Tematoa. And I started really thinking about this myth and thinking about what would happen if we retold this story and this particular part of the story so that Hera and Zeus are held responsible for their actions rather than Hercules. And so, finally, right. And I think that because I think, like I said earlier, that the idea of trying to do right after a wrong, which is a really big part of those 12 labors, is actually a good lesson and a good moral. But it seems like in this case, Hercules shouldn't have to be the one doing these things. He was literally driven insane by Hera and her jealousy. And Zeus is the one that, like, basically tricked somebody into having sex with him. Typical. So in this alternative version, Hercules captures Zeus and Hera, and then he throws them both into a giant pit of crabs. And then, then we just let loose the crab bucket mentality, which is basically that anytime, right? Anytime they try to escape, the crabs pinch them and pull them back down into the pit. So Zeus and Hera are trapped in this pit of crabs. These crabs are then revered for freeing women, Ganymede, and basically everyone from Zeus's designs and then relatedly from Hera's jealous temper. And that's how they end up in the stars. And in my usual tradition, I have decided to give this a title. 
And the title of this would be <laughs> The Crab Bucket of the Gods. Wow. These are all really good. I can tell you put a lot of thought into this. We have crab as hero, crab as villain, and then crab as hero again as part of this crab bucket of the god, prison gods scenario. But yeah, I think that's a really good punishment for Zeus and Hera, where they just are constantly being pinched and pulled down and they can never leave. And it's more like just painful, but also more <laughs> annoying than anything. Yeah, very Greek myth energy. And honestly, I think that overall, these myths actually have something to do with crabs. So I think that we have crushed it. All right, it's been a wild ride here today <laughs> with cancer. We've had crabs, we've had donkeys, we've had Hercules. <laughs> We've had carcinization, but let's get a little less serious and a lot sillier here in our final segment, Pop Culture Superstars. In this segment, we share our favorite and least favorite occurrences of this month's constellation in pop culture, and then we wish upon a star for what we think should exist. You want to get us started today with our least favorite? Yeah, I think that there can be only one choice for least favorite pop culture appearance of cancer. Is it cancer? Yeah, fuck cancer. Yeah, if you're not aware, it's a disease. According to the CDC in 2019, there are 1.75 million new cancer cases reported, and there were about 600,000 people who died of cancer in 2019. And that basically means that for every 100,000 people living in the U.S. in 2019, 146 of them died from cancer. So, yeah, fuck cancer. Um, I think that's the least favorite. That has to, has to be the only choice that can really be made here. Yeah, we're definitely in agreement this month on that. Mm -hmm. So let's get into our most favorite, Kit. Can you start us off with what's your favorite appearance of cancer in pop culture? So there's not really a lot of choices um, out there. Nope. Um, so I decided that, you know, in the vein of our least favorite, that I was going to go with the peer-reviewed journal, which is called Cancer. And it's a research journal that um, publishes data on treating and um, addressing cancer. So, so yeah, uh, kept it kind of simple. But where did you go? What was your favorite pop culture appearance of cancer? Cancer's a tough one this month because there's not a lot of options. I went with a book that was published in 2011 hmm. by Siddhartha Mukherjee, who is an Indian-born American physician and oncologist. He said he was inspired by a cancer patient who told him, I'm willing to go on fighting, but I need to know what it is that I'm battling. In response to this idea, Mukherjee published The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer in 2010. It won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize. It features an incredibly fascinating, albeit morbid, mm. history of cancer going all the way back to Imhotep in ancient Egypt mm. about 4,600 years ago. And then it goes through Galen and Hippocrates in Greeks. And then it talks about in the medieval times how everyone was fascinated with bile. And then it goes all the way up to the modern day. But it's a really interesting book. If you want to know how humans have been facing mortality and disease since basically the beginning of time. So that was my favorite. 
Now we should talk about what we wish existed. Uh, yeah, so I'll just go first. Let's just start this off by saying that the entire constellation needs a rebrand. So I am proposing that we rename the entire constellation after the mythological crab, Cancrinos, wow. <laughs> who uh, was in your origin story myth. And so we're, I'm just starting from that premise. I'm leaving the word cancer behind. I think we just get rid of it. It just it's it's an illness that just it affects so many people, and we just need to move on from it. And we're just gonna call this constellation now Cancrinos. Uh, so I'm starting. From I think this is a great development. <laughs> Didn't see this coming at all. Okay, keep going. Uh, oh, so, okay, so I'm going to start with the premise that this constellation is now called Cancronos. And what I am creating with the brand Cancronos is a guard droid crab that lives in your lawn and attacks and scares people away when they try to, like, break into your house. And it will be called the Cancronos Yard Guard. Yard Guard. Wow. I think this is phenomenal. And I'm not going to lie, my What I Wish Existed <laughs> is not entirely dissimilar. Oh, wow. Okay, tell me about uh, it. I, so I also wanted crab bots, but <laughs> I did not think enough to rename the whole constellation. So mine were still called Cancer Bots. Oh. But instead of using – yeah. Instead of being used for yard guards, mine had sort of – more of an underwater exploration mm. faculty mm -hmm. so i was like you know we know as much about the deep sea as we do the surface of the moon so if we built a bunch of like underwater drones and we know that crab shapes are very successful in a variety of environments mm -hmm. so if we just sent a bunch of those down to the ocean floor to do some research for us it'd be a lot cheaper than trying <laughs> to put subs and people down there mm -hmm. and you know if eventually this army of research crabs developed its own artificial intelligence <laughs> and got out of control and took over the world well i mean kind of always meant to be <laughs> but yeah who knows what's going down there we have all sorts of unexplored territory here mm -hmm. on earth we gotta do the research and protecting your yard definitely has more importance <laughs> in our day-to-day -day life but i think we should also develop crab bots to help us go forward as well. Yeah, and I bet, like, the research team would come up with some kind of acronym to make, like, cancer work, right? It'd be like, I don't know what it is. Like, we should we should uh, think about that. Let us know if you have an acronym that would work for these underwater uh, research crabs um, because that seems like yeah, something they like, would do. We can't come up with it no, off the top of the head, but if you can, let no, us know. Actually, no. Don't do that, folks. <laughs> Just rename this whole thing. Kit was right. Carcanos is a much better name for it, and that's all I have to say. Uh, you know, it's only a matter of time before one of our wishes comes true, and I hope it's the let's rename the entire constellation wish. Thank you for joining us here today on Starry Time while we learned all about the constellation Cancer. Next month, we'll be learning about Leo the Lion. This has been Kit and Jordan, sisters, lovers of stars and stories. And we'll see you next time on Starry Time.